Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on April 7th, 2016, and is titled On the Frontier, Profits, Purpose, and the Future of Impact Investing, and features Michael Fay, co-founder and executive chairman of GiveDirectly, Liz Luckett, president of the Social Entrepreneurs Fund, Robin Steffen, senior manager of impact investments at the Omidyar Network, and Georgia Levinson-Cohan, senior director and fellow of the Program on Profits and Purpose at New America. We're in really for a treat tonight in a discussion about impact investing. We have um, really some of the top of the leaders, I think, in the field, both from the investor perspective and also the entrepreneur perspective. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, about what impact investing means. Um, I don't want to spend the entire night, which we could, on definitions. Uh, it's a little bit of, um, a little bit of I think, a Potter-Stewart uh, Supreme Court justice situation. You kind of, um, hard to define on, on Potter-Stewart on porn, hard to define, but you know it when you see it. But I did want to at least use the gin um, the Global Impact Investing Network definition to start us off tonight. Um, when we think about impact investing, impact investments are those made into companies, organizations, and funds with the intention to generate social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Uh, I think what's most useful to point out about that definition is that it doesn't really tell us much about the nature of the returns, the size of the returns. Uh, it doesn't say where we're doing the investing, so no t discussion of emerging markets, or tech, or stage of investment, and all the things that we're going to get into tonight. Um, I won't take up too much more time. I, if you're here, I'm assuming, because we have a great lineup of folks, but I'll just tell you a little bit more briefly. Uh, first, we'll begin um, with Robin Steffen from Omidyar Network. Uh, thank you, Robin, for coming. She is a senior manager of impact investments at Omidyar. Um, uh, and among other roles, there was a contributor to a report, which we have caught, you may have seen, outside the Frontier Capital Markets report, um, Early Stage Investing for Financial Returns and Social Impact. Uh, but prior to Omidyar, Robin worked in the White House, uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, on a lot of development um, and impact work, including Power Africa, the Global Innovation Fund, um, was it CGI before that, has done a fair amount in development, so that's terrific. Uh, Next to Robin is Liz Luckett, the president of the Social Entrepreneurs Fund. Um, and uh, Liz, I think <clears throat> on my way uh, on the subway, I was thinking my Hamilton mania obsession. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't, before you think I'm overpaid, <laughs> I have not yet seen Hamilton, but it's an obsession in my house. And my, and my kids sing all the songs, including It Must Be Nice to Have um, Washington by Your Side, the like burr. Um, uh, on, and so I was thinking, it must be nice to have Liz Luckett. This is what I was thinking. It must be nice to have Liz Luckett by, by your side. And it's true because so I, teach, I teach at Classical Columbia University, I teach at Columbia Business School, and I've discovered finally that the best teaching involves bringing Liz up to my class. And then I just sit back for a few hours in the students line up and I get great uh, student reviews. So that's, <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, it's true. So and Liz um, it runs uh, Social Entrepreneurs Fund, which she'll tell us more about, which is essentially um, a partnership fund of, co of committed capital for early stage equity stakes in impact-oriented investments. She has a terrific portfolio, which I'm hoping she'll speak um, about tonight, uh, some of which is in emerging markets, not all. Much of it touches on tech, not all. Um, but Liz has a really fascinating background, 
both in investing and philanthropy and marketing analytics. Prior to TCEF, she was um, at Pershing Square Foundation doing impact investments, but also um, was an SVP at Citigroup and co-founder and EVP of Falcom Analytics. So I'm hoping everyone will talk a little bit about their backgrounds too and how they actually come to impact investing. And then finally, Michael Fay uh, for the entrepreneur perspective tonight, also the token Y chromosome right here. Because <laughs> all, the, all the investment panels are always so women dominated that we need. <laughs> and, and, but uh, Michael is a serial and very successful social entrepreneur, uh, co-founder, executive chairman of Give Directly, which I'm hoping you'll speak about tonight, as well as founder and CEO of the Segovia, um, which uh, is a enterprise software company that really is focused on fighting um, poverty in developing countries, primarily, and Michael will talk about where it's evolving, by making payments making it easier to make payments faster, easier, more efficiently. Uh, and Michael will, I hope, speak about some of his earlier adventures um, in the world of cash transfers, really, which began with Give Directly, which is a more philanthropic version. But Michael is a development economist by training, uh, but also spent a long stint at McKinsey uh, and at the UN Millennium Development Project, et cetera, also a development expert. So, I will, I will stop, I will begin with a question, but thank you all um, for coming, it's terrific. And we have a, I have a couple of questions for the group and then I, I do hope we open it up to Q&A and um, longer discussion. So Robin, I'd love to begin with you if we can. Um, many people will, here will know about some of our Omidyar's work for a number of reasons. Omidyar is obviously um, very involved in the work at Civic Hall, supports a number of programs at New America. But I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about how you came to Omidyar and also the investment thesis. Again, when I, when I teach at Columbia, um, we use the Omidyar network as sort of an early pioneer in new types of philanthropy and really what we sort of have come to think of as hybrid philanthropy and investing that does work both with nonprofits and for-profits. But I'd wonder, if you could really just give an overview of that work, um, how you came there, what your investment thesis or theses are, and a little bit about the report as well. Thank you. Sure, I'd be happy to. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Georgia, for pulling all of this together. I think it'll be a really fun evening. So <clears throat> why don't I start off with just a little bit about Omidyar Network, for those of you who don't know it, and can back up and talk a little bit about how I came to be part of Omidyar Network as well, if that's if that's if that's of interest. So, Omidyar Network was created a little over a decade ago um, by Pam and Pierre Omidyar on the heels of the eBay IPO. And we are a little bit of a strange animal. We're, we call ourselves a philanthropic investment firm. So we're a hybrid structure. We actually have both a 501c3 foundation and an LLC, both under the same roof. And what that means is that we have incredibly flexible capital. So we can do everything from grants to nonprofits to um, for-profit investments seeking market rate returns and everything in between. Um, to date, just to give you a rough sense, we've done a little over $900 million in total investments. And that's split about 50-50 between the nonprofit side and the for-profit, which are both invested in a very um, unified and complementary way towards our overall mission. And that mission is very much around creating opportunity for people around the world um, uh, so that they can really realize their full potential. And we do that both in emerging markets as well as in the US, but I'll focus on the emerging markets piece this evening. 
Um, and in, in there, um, and in that particular context, it's worth noting that our investments don't, for the most part, focus on people who are at the bottom of the pyramid, who are earning less than $2 a day. We see that commercial scale is extremely rare um, with that population. And so much of our work is focusing on people who are earning between 2 and $8 a day. So low and lower middle income populations. These are people who are, on the one hand, at risk of slipping back into extreme poverty. But on the other hand, they're also aspiring to be part of the middle class. And they have enough disposable income that they can actually spend money on the products and services that would help to improve their own lives. And collectively around the world, this population, the low to lower middle income population, has a collective purchasing power of $3 trillion. So this is a pretty significant market. And it used to be that companies, for the most part, weren't paying attention to that market. They weren't serving that market. But that's really changing. We now have companies like Off-Grid Electric, like Microinsurer, like uh, Geeky, who are providing this population with services like education, energy, financial services like insurance and credit. And they're doing it through market-based models that are sustainable um, and that can have both financial return and impact. So one of the things that, as you think about that growing space of companies that are wanting to serve that target market, one of the things we wanted to do with the Frontier Capital Report that you mentioned, Georgia, is to map out that opportunity. Because I think one of the things that we've realized as through our own journey thus far is that those opportunities in emerging markets, they're not all the same. You can't paint them with the same brush in terms of expectations for financial return, for risk, or for social impact. And so part of what we wanted to do with Frontier Capital is just taking a moment to look within what we have our own portfolio and say, okay, well, how do we actually think about these distinct market segments within emerging markets, within companies who are specifically serving low and lower middle income populations? And, and to do that because we actually see that most investors, that you know, if you think about the impact investing field, as Georgia said, you know, we could spend all night defining it, and that's partly because it's really diverse. It has this fantastically big tent that has been helped to make it successful. But that also means that different investors come with different goals. And um, the more we understand these different types of business opportunities, um, the more that investors can really play with purpose, where they can have best achieve their goals. So I'm going to very quickly give a, a, an overview of what those three segments are, and then some examples of companies in each of them, just to give you a flavor of what that looks like. So the first bucket is. Um, a segment that we call replicate and adapt. So this, for the most part, are companies that are taking business models that have been proven in the US and other developed markets, and then replicating and adapting them in emerging markets. So witness, for example, what Rocket Internet is doing by taking models like Amazon and Zappos and bringing those to emerging markets. What's interesting is that more and more we're seeing these types of business models also be able to bring benefits to the types of customers that we care about most. So an example in India is a company called Quicker, which is essentially an online classifieds marketplace and that is creating um, opportunities specifically 
for some of the uh, LMI population there. Um, that this market, because these business models have already been proven in another place, it's the least risky. On the other hand, it's also the most crowded. So not surprisingly, you already see quite a bit of venture capital playing in what we in this market segment. So from our uh, perspective, it gets more interesting as you move into the next market segment, which is called we we call the frontier. These are businesses that are um, actually developing new, innovative. Um, products, services, and business models that are specifically targeting needs of low to lower middle income populations in emerging markets. So they're innovating just for them. And we think that this is a place where VC still works. In fact, it's the heart of what VC is supposed to do. Um, and there's two characteristics that we see of these business models that allow them to have the type of massive and rapid scale that um, uh, that these VCs are looking for. So the first is that they tend to target a mixed income or a mass market. So we've been talking about people who make between $2 and $8 a day, and that's a $3 trillion market globally. But these companies intentionally target an even bigger market. So they target not, not, not only low to lower middle income populations, but also adjacent income groups, the aspiring middle class, the middle class. And let me give you an example of what that looks like. So there's a company in Mexico that's called Verde Verdad, and they saw a huge opportunity to be able to provide affordable eye exams and glasses to a very big market that included low to lower middle income customers, but also the middle class. And actually targeting both was really critical to their business model. So they intentionally built their retail stores in a downtown area where they had high tra foot traffic from both the middle class and lower income customers. And that led to a high volume, economies of scale, and being able to offer those eyeglasses, those eye exams at a low enough price point that it was actually affordable to the low income customers. That ironically, they never could have served the low income customers if they weren't also targeting the middle class because they wouldn't have had high enough volume. That volume also allowed them to invest in having in-house beveling machines so that from the time that you got your eye exam till you walked out the door with your new glasses in hand was only 45 minutes. And that was huge value for customers across the spectrum. So that's one example. Um, the other characteristic I talked about is asset light. So this is um, the distinction if you think about, um, in your mind, the difference between highly successful companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google versus those like Walmart and Chipotle that have more of a brick and mortar presence. Not surprisingly, if you do the math, you look at how many years did it take them to reach a billion dollars in revenue. For those asset light um, companies, it's around five years. For Walmart and Chipotle, 15 to 18 years. So really big difference in terms of how fast they can scale. And that's because if you have an asset light a model, which is often involves technology like mobile, then it leads to, it makes it much easier to test, to iterate on the types of products and services. Once you've de-risked your business model, your product, it also makes it cheaper and quicker to scale. So this is at the heart of many of the Silicon Valley companies, like some of those that I just mentioned, but we think it's even more important in developing countries because these are places where infrastructure is really scarce 
and um, and and debt capital in particular can be um, can be quite expensive. So those are the two pieces around frontier that they are tend to target these big mixed income or mass markets, and they also are asset light. And and I'll just note um, very quickly that that we recognize that there's lots of really important companies that are having huge impact that don't meet those criteria. And we think about those as being in the frontier plus, a place that has real financial returns, a nascent track record there, but is also not for the faint of heart, um, but potential for transformational um, impact on populations. And just to end with one more, um, one more example, if that's helpful, um, of one of our own investments um, in, in the frontier plus, um, it's a it's a company called Bridge International Academies, and Bridge um, initially came to us because they had an idea. They believed that they could provide low income kids in Kenya with a high quality education at an unimaginably low price, and to do it through a school in a box model. It was totally unproven at the time, and. It was very asset intensive. This was about building, buying land and building schools for expanding the number of schools, of students that they reached. But we were really excited not only about the potential impact they could have for the students in the classrooms, but also the idea that they could demonstrate a low cost, high quality private school chain um, uh, for the first time in Africa. And um, we'll note that when we came in, they had two pilots and no investors knocking at their door. Um, and But the early stage risk capital that we brought allowed them to de-risk um, and prove the business model and bring in other investors like NEA and Kosla, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. They've now been able to scale to over 400 schools in three countries. And so that just is a sense of what's possible even in the Frontier Plus that we think is tougher, but there's real opportunity there for both financial returns and impact. Uh, thank you. That's great. Um, Liz, I know in your diligence and your um, your experience at TCEF and before that also Bridging Squared that you, um, many of the companies that Robin spoke about, you actually also diligence and, and look at. Um, but I'd love you to talk a little bit about your investment thesis. I think there's a lot of overlap, but you may come at it a little bit differently. Um, and if you'd like, I'd also love, because I, I think that you are various private, your various business backgrounds also just really lend themselves very nicely to your current investment perspective. So I think you're on. Um, uh, and then if you want, or we can come back, but if you also want to touch it, I mean, your portfolio is also fascinating. So. Um, this is working? Okay. Yeah. I have a tech background, but that's not obvious. Um, so... Um, Yes. Uh, so I'm Liz Luckett. Um, I'm the president of the Pershing, uh, no, of the, the Social Entrepreneurs <laughs> Fund. Um, I was at Pershing Square, um, where I ran impact investing for about three years and incubated this fund while I was there. So um, the, the Social Entrepreneurs Fund, or TSEF, is a, um, a group of high net worth individuals who are very philanthropic and quite interested in the intersection between philanthropy and investing. And these were not uh, investors who were interested in writing checks to funds, so they were um, quite interested in sitting in and meeting the entrepreneurs themselves. Much to George's earlier point, their, their sense of what is impact investing had a lot to do with sitting down and looking at investments and determining that for themselves. 
Um, so our investment committee actually includes all of our limited partners. They come to the meeting and they sit on the investment committee, which is very unusual for a venture fund. Um, and challenging, but really interesting. Um, so we, our investment thesis is simply, well, first of all, I'm, I'm hurting lions, as I like to say. There's a lot of strong and, and deep uh, experience in investments. And so what people come into the room with is where I've found a consistency is um, in two things. One is that what they have in common is they feel that there's a great burden with philanthropy, that if you have, if there's a, a, a something that you care very deeply about and you're the main funder of it. If your funding goes away, potentially that cause will suffer. And so I think that is a commonality between them. And the only other thing I would say they have in common is that they're quite interested in finding efficiencies in marketplaces. Um, and we're our investment thesis is simply to find those efficiencies for underserved markets. And with that very deliberate and intentional um, um, and explicit uh, target market in, in place. So if you look at some of the larger efficiencies created over the last five, 10 years, like eBay and Uber and Etsy and um, all of the sort of highly efficient markets that now exist, they do benefit underserved markets in many ways, but they weren't set out to do that. They benefit everyone. And so we look at companies and investments that are setting out to help low-income inmates, veterans, people very specifically who are underserved markets. Um, and so as an example of some of our investments, we have um, one company called Pigeonly, which was uh, founded by a former inmate. He spent five years incarcerated for selling um, marijuana through his UPS store. Um, while he was uh, in jail, he lost touch with his um, girlfriend and his family because of the incredibly high cost of phone calls. A 10-minute call from prison can be as much as $50, $60. Um, so that's a great example of a uh, sadly very large market in the United States and a market that is incredibly vulnerable and they're being exploited by a lot of a very few greedy companies. Um, so he came up with this business plan that he wrote in, in while in jail. He um, made friends with a white collar prisoner and um, they sort of put this business plan together. And um, when he got out, he it's a voice over IP network essentially to allow all inmates to um, make calls that are capped at $10 a month. So they can't spend more than that. Their only limit is the number of minutes they're allowed. Um, he pulled together a database that um, he's probably the only person that I know of that has a, a record of where every inmate, every federal prisoner is at any given time, as well as he's got about 30 of the 50 states. And so he knows where prisoners are, where they're moving, and he does direct mail. So I like to call his platform mobile to mail platform, because if you think about everyone outside, they all have mobile phones now. It's moved on quite a bit from what inmates are allowed access to. Um, and he will allow families to, um, he, they can text message a, a photo to him and he prints it and he mails it. And if you think about it, everybody's lost the ability to see inmates don't have photographs of their families anymore. Uh, if you don't have a printer at home, it's quite expensive to go to CVS and print out photos. So this is one very easy platform. You can also print birthday cards, articles. And so it keeps families in touch with the inmates, which keeps the inmates having somewhere to go when they get out, which helps lower recidivism. So this is just, it's a its a great company. It's a very, it's founded by someone who very, um, very, very much guards the um, mission of the company from personal experience, um, and it's a, it's quite an interesting platform. So that's one one example. Um, we also have companies all over the world. So we have. Uh, 
uh, an investment in um, that's helping bring uh, using mobile data to determine um, risk for credit lending in Tanzania. So it's using um, people's it's it's merging your mobile phone behavior with your credit score essentially to say based on the frequency of use and your behavior on on your phone, even if you don't have a um, postpaid account where you know we know who you are we just watch your behavior if you allow they opt in to link that behavior with their with their savings account and it allows uh, the credit officer to make a decision on the spot about their risk it um, lowers the cost of servicing those loans and it helps determine who's who who's um, of you know good credit risk this is something a lot of people have been trying to do and they've actually just figured out um, how to expand this. So they're now in six countries um, in Africa, and it's it's a, a really interesting one. Um, we have companies doing, I can go on, we have about 10, so they're doing all sorts of different things. But that's, that's essentially, we do um, point of sale devices in Mexico. We have a, a low cost, um, uh, Diabetes care in Mexico, which is um, capping the cost of um, service at $300 a year and creating all of these um, highly efficient uh, clinics around for people to get access to diabetes care. So we've taken on a number of different issues, but we're always looking specifically that it's either low cost or, or um, creating a, a, a service that wasn't there before. Great. Thank you. Um, Michael, um, I, I'd love you to talk about Segovia. I'd love you to back it up and talk about sort of give directly as well and the precursor. Um, and I might interrupt a little bit to have you elaborate a more on cash and cash payments and why, because I think sometimes it's Please. intuitive. Um, but why don't you start and then I'll yeah. happily and, and thanks, Georgia, for organizing this. Um, I don't often get to be the only white chromosome, so we'll be do doing my best. Um, I, I should also thank both Pershing and Omidyar, who are both investors in Segovia. Um, I wouldn't be doing or able to do what I'm doing without uh, both of them. So. Uh, th thank you, guys. Uh, going back very quickly, I think I found my place. I was a I was a grad student in a pretty common place as a potential uh, donor. I think it was the first time I had anything in my savings account, uh, and very basic questions started to occur to me, which are, where should I give my money? Which leads you to, well, if I give my money to this organization, where does it go? The most simple question, if I give a dollar, where does that wind up? And then the second question, which is what evidence is there that that's actually having an impact on the person that receives it, whether it's food or training or whatever the case may be. So this may not surprise you, but those are two very simple questions, but also two incredibly difficult questions to actually answer uh, for most organizations. So we did some thinking, and I had plenty of time to do thinking because I was in grad school, um, uh, along with uh, my co-founder and partner for the last decade or so, Paul Niehaus, uh, about where to give our money. And we realized that we were sitting at two trends that were happening in the world, and, and two really exciting trends that happened to be coming together. Uh, one was the rise of evidence in development and social policy. I think anybody in the tech world knows A-B tests or randomizations, but for 50 years or so, we had been making policy largely by aphorism and by expression, teach a man to fish, um, feed him for life, give him a fish, feed him for a day. And, and th these really were um, the things that were defining policy. And that started the change in the early 2000s. 
And the second thing that happened was the explosion of mobile money. So the idea that you could send money from your phone to somebody else's phone, uh, which in the US is still a bit of an uncommon thing. I think Venmo and PayPal are changing that, but uh, this is a place where Kenya and other African countries actually got a bit of a head start on us. Um, so these two things are happening at the same time. Um, the outcome of the first was that we realized that the thing that we all assumed didn't work, giving poor people money to make them less poor, actually did work. Uh, a lot of the things that we were doing that we thought worked really well didn't work as well as we thought. Uh, and now we had technology that actually made that possible. I could sit in a room in the US and send money abroad to a refugee camp in Kenya um, or to Nepal immediately after the earthquake or somewhere else. Um, so it doesn't take too much creativity um, to get to give directly, which was the idea that we should set up an organization that let donors um, like me and my colleagues and family at the time send money abroad to the extreme poor uh, through mobile technology. Um, so that was give directly. We did it for a few years ourselves with our own money, our friends' money, our family's money. Um, it wasn't much. We started with like $30,000, um, which was the emptying of our research budgets, our savings, that sort of thing, um, and went from there and, and launched it in 2011 publicly. Um, and have since grown um, to a place where last year we raised over 50 million. So it was about 52 million of revenue. In the history, as GiveDirectly grew, um, it became a lot harder to give away kind of 20, tens of millions of dollars than it did the first 30,000, which I was able to give away a reasonable chunk by getting on a plane, filling up my account in Kenya and going to refugee camps, enrolling people and sending them money. That, that stops working at a certain point. Um, and we built a lot of the systems that were required, but the one that we couldn't really find the solution for was the management of the digital payments. So how do you actually integrate with all the local money providers um, around the world, which, which is a challenging problem. Uh, the first option is buy a solution. There wasn't really a solution. Uh, the second option is build a solution for give directly, uh, which was a perfectly good option. Um, but we also realized that we would have been leaving a lot of value for others on the table. Um, we don't want give directly to be the only people that can do cash transfers in the world. Um, there are lots of people that need to pay people in these markets, and we may as well have made it easier for everyone. Um, and that's when we decided to start Segovia, uh, which is a software company. It's a payments company. Uh, it's a completely separate company from Give Directly outside of the founders, outside of sharing uh, the co-founders. Um, it's meant to make bulk payments to the emerging markets easier. Um, and we went from there. And I, I think the one thing I'll say, and I hope we get to touch on it, it it's been fascinating to run both a nonprofit and for-profit and raise capital for both. Because I think people often assume that the differences are much greater than they actually are, um, both in governance and culture um, than you would imagine. Great, thank you. So I'd like to actually follow up on that, on the fundraising and raising capital, because you've, you've come to both of these folks to, or their organizations to raise money. And, but, but you and I have had several times, we've been hoping to do this. I've been like this for a while because we've talked about fundraising and what it's like for you to fundraise in Silicon Valley and go to traditional VCs and why there isn't more conventional VC in the markets you're working in. Um, you know, and sometimes you have a pitch that really talks about social impact, and sometimes you don't, depending on who your audience is. And so I'd love you to talk about 
what that, you know, when do you really lead with poverty and the mission of the organization? When do you really lead with what you think are the financial returns? How do you cater that? And, and, who, and who have, I don't know how, if you're comfortable, who have you been successful, I guess, but both with Give Directly, but also more recently with Sogovia in, in raising funds for and why? Yeah, so I, I think it is a bit of an unfortunately bifurcated market. I think fundamentally, as an entrepreneur, you have to decide what you want to do and what you're building and then find the most appropriate capital for that. And I don't think, or it is not a static game. So people will say things well, like, how do you know you control the mission? Um, can't you control the mission more at Give Directly? Uh, and the answer is no. I can't control the mission more at Give Directly. Um, the way nonprofit governance works is that as a founder and board member, I have one vote, and each other board member has one vote. Um, as a for-profit company, you can structure the organization and equity as you wish. Um, so, for, for example, and to just do the most extreme example, Mark Zuckerberg has a lot more control over Facebook than I do over Give Directly. And that's something that people don't realize, that the actual control of the company and mission really comes down to what the governance structure is. And what the governance structure is, is a function of what the surrounding capital markets are. So for example, in your first round of raising equity, I could raise from all social oriented investors. Now, if I know that I need to go back to the capital markets and that I won't be able to fund the second round with exclusively social capital, I actually need to think about what the business is that will appeal to non-social capital. Uh, and that's just the reality of the market. In, in the case of um, Segovia, I think we tried to be very strategic about the mix of people that invested. We wanted people with the expertise uh, that we needed to build the company. We wanted people with uh, largely a financial motive, but we also wanted people um, mixed in there with the social motive. So Reed Hoff we, we did our Series A last July, um, which was led by Reed Hoffman, uh, who is as deep on tech and payments as anyone um, and just an incredible person to work with. Um, we've worked with um, RF Nakvi, who um, is the CEO and co-founder or founder of Abraj Capital, I think the largest non-brick private equity firm in the world and probably knows and has as strong a network in these markets as anyone. Uh, uh, and then folks like, like Pershing and Omidyar that bring both expertise uh, and a more social perspective. So that was, that was how it all came together. And Liz, when you, your, your investors are mission-driven, but what, when they think about the, their, their hurdle or their returns, um, and how do you see, I'd love you to talk about that, and then also, as, as Michael said, that's the reality of the market. How do you see the larger marketplace of, um, from an investor perspective? How many of folks are like you? How, what do you really think the role is for more commercial does it depend on you know how B you are of the P? I mean, does it depend on right? I, I, I may, but, but you know how how far along the frontier you really want to go in terms of really meeting underserved markets or um, return requirements? Um, so in my fund, there's no explicit return requirements. They are looking. They would very much like their money back, and they would like a return. So we definitely keep that in mind. I'm always interested during the investment committee meetings to see P 
people say, this is too commercial. I mean, we've seen many times where we'll see a company, like you described earlier, that's you know, taking an urgent care um, model that's been done many times and doing it in an emerging market, and they'll say, eh, that's boring, I can do that in my day job, um, and that doesn't excite them, and then we'll see something with, um, you know, with a, a very strong impact, but the business model won't fly, and they'll say that we just it just doesn't work, you know, if it doesn't work when it's small, it's not gonna work at scale. Um, and so it's interesting, but it's I'm, I'm often surprised by the reaction. Um, I know which entrepreneurs are going to be exciting. I know which business models are interesting, but I, you, you're not sure. I, I, you know, I had this note to self that not to bore them anymore with models that were too familiar. I mean, they're looking for innovation and they're looking for strong impact and they're looking for returns. So everybody wants everything. Um, um, and that's hard to find, and, and that's what's fun about it. You're sort of out looking for those sorts of models. Um, in terms of other investors out there, I mean, um, there are lots of small funds. Um, there's lots of single angel funds. There's a, there's a, the most of this investment is coming from the angel market. Um, and I would have to say it's largely at the seed level. It's largely hobby-based. I mean, this is people who have money, and this is interesting to them. Rather than give it away, they're sort of following an investment or, or in doing some small investments. That's a tremendously large community. I've watched it grow over the years. Um, so. That you know, the, the out there is interesting, and then you have people like Omidyar and um, you know a couple of very large players, and who aren't necessarily public yet with their results of how the investments go. I would imagine a lot of them are still young and haven't haven't um, harvested. But I think it's that'll be interesting. You know, if if, if Omidyar and others come forward because you you have one of the largest portfolios, um, as do some other you know some other large players. So that'll be interesting to see how it's going. Um, but there aren't a ton of exits to point to. There aren't, you know, if you read impact investing journals, they're often sort of talking about the same company still, you know, the one leapfrog company that got sold to Prudential. And you know, there's a couple examples, but there aren't, there aren't that many exits. Um, so that's, that's my sense of the overall market. Your other question, though, was about uh, scale? Or you were something about the bottom well, of the no, pyramid? No, I was just didn't, but it's a, also a question that... Um, I can hand over to Rob. It was a little bit more that if you are targeting the, it, are your in, are your hurdle rates related a little bit to where you see the the pyramid? So if you are not necessarily going, um, is there a willingness to go, you know, under two dollars a day, um, in in a, as a trade for for loss or a concessionary? Or I, I mean, I can tell we have one company that I would definitely probably describe as concessionary, and it was. Um, it's a company that is was so compelling, the, both the impact and the entrepreneur, that everybody simply wanted to invest. Um, and this is a company in Liberia. It's, um, it's a factory, um, a former Liberian citizen who moved to the US and moved back to start a factory that is run by women. Um, he hired 300 women. They were trained to sew trousers. Um, he got three international companies, J. Crew, Hitachi, and one other to sign up. Uh, it took it's like an 18-month diligence process to get a new country on board for, for manufacturing. They were ready to go. They had the machines on site. They had the materials on site. They were trained. They started about a week in. Ebola broke out. Um, and so we watched that company they stayed open for two weeks. Um, and these are women, by far, their first formalized employment. Um, many were child brides, like very terrible personal stories. Um, but this job was like 
everything. And it's just so horrible, the timing of this, to watch Ebola break out. And then all of them, pretty much everyone lived in West Point in Monrovia, which is the epicenter of Ebola there. Um, and what I would say is, nine months later, when that factory came, reopened, um, not a single woman and none of their family members died from Ebola. And I feel like that's pretty pretty good impact. Um, and the, in, the reason for that was in the two weeks they were open, they were you know, told a lot about the disease. They had people come and explain how to manage it, how to care for themselves and their family, what to avoid. And that information was very hard to come by. And that's why a lot of people did, it didn't make it. Um, so they survived at the epicenter of a breakout of a horrible disease because of formalized employment. Nobody was worrying about their investment. Um, and I think everybody felt very good about that. So that's an example of a concessionary investment where, and the guy who runs it is just a phoenix. He's back up. He's got them taking the spoiled fabric and sewing uniforms for kids that he's funded on Kickstarter by selling T-shirts and Shaquille O'Neal's involved now. It's, 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 um, it's, a, great, it's a great story, um, but it's not, it's not a great investment. We're hoping one day it will be. <laughs> And I'm not one more to you along these lines, and then we'll open up because I know there are a lot of questions. Do you, as as um, Midyar thinks about the 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 different types of investment opportunities, so not just sort of the replicate frontier and frontier plus, but also you know the report that you just produced is tremendous thought leadership that then can catalyze the broader market, or at least you know sort of identify and illuminate opportunities. I think both for entrepreneurs and investors. Where do you see your organization? Um, hoping to do more investing? Where do you sort of see Amidyar seeing the larger field evolve with your, with your work? Thank you. So I think that, um, I think one of the things that's exciting is that the field is, is, is really at this moment of tremendous growth. Um, and from investors with very different goals coming in from, um, I think, investors like your LPs who are really there because they want to see you know, the philanthropic mission first and foremost, all the way over to pension funds and institutional investors that you know, are absolutely looking for market rate returns, but at the same time want to be able to drive value in addition to those financial returns and see the ability to create more long-term value through that strategy. So it's a really big tent in a really big marketplace. Um, one of the things that, you know, just a, a, a thought about where we sit, um, uh, and then also I wanted to, to come back to a couple of the excellent points that Liz made. So um, we um, have um, very clear, you know, we, we don't have LPs, um, uh, except, you know, we have, we're driven by our board, by Pam and Pierre, and it is very clear that every single investment, the first question is, how does it advance our strategic mission? Um, in terms of our goals for impact. Um, but once we have identified that strategic fit and our vision for how it changes the world, we actually have this flexibility um, because of our structure to be able to then say, okay, well, um, uh, we can um, expect different type of financial returns depending on the business model 
We can expect different types of financial returns depending on the types of customers that it's reaching, depending on the type of impact that we think it's going to have. And so internally set those expectations differently for different investments um, because you know, there's a real range in terms of um, uh, what we can, where we can invest. I think one of the things that's interesting in terms of these questions between you know, mission and, and financial return is that we um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the, the pieces around scale, and, and scale is really twofold in the sense that without scale, you can't have the financial returns. But without scale, you also can't have the impact. And so many of the businesses that we invest in actually have their impact like, very embedded in the product or the service that they're selling, where growth means bringing that product that has the potential to change a life, that ability to have energy off-grid, that education product, um, to more lives. And so it's really, um, a, a, in that way, it, uh, there doesn't always need to be attention. Um, uh, looks. <laughs> no, that's great. Jump in, jump in. I'd love for this to be a conversation. I think... Um Scale is like is the thing that comes up all the time, and particularly with very you know successful businessmen are talking about scale. So you know I'm on the board of Root Capital, which is um, which is a, a they give loans to farmers all over in emerging markets, um, farming collectives, but really the poorest farmers who come together and they basically do receivables lending against contracts for coffee or any sort of um, uh, agrarian product. What's interesting always when they're fundraising is simply they, they've had a really good um, rate of returns. They've, they, they get paid back, you know, most of the time. It's, it's a, they really impact people's lives, everybody. These are people who, you know, without access to capital cannot earn a living wage or ab abject poverty and with access to capital with, you know, are able to invest in their farms and, and buy machinery and pay themselves. So I would say each farm that they loan to, there's massive impact, massive. I mean, people go from, you know, basically slash and burn economies to having a home and having a school and investing. Um, and every time we go to fundraise that, you know, well, the investors say, okay, if I give you a billion dollars now, can you get this to every farmer? And so it's a good question, but I think there's this, there's this, um, Frustration, you know, when you take when you mix the private sector and the public sector, you get an urgency, and it's like fix it. You know, people are poor. How do we fix poverty? How do we fix it? How do we fix you know starvation? How do we fix how do we fix these problems? And there's this private sector sense of well, when I put more money into this investment, the investment grows and I get more money out. How do I put more money into this problem? And so I think this is this is the tension where I think it's a really interesting conversation because clearly scale has to happen. I. There's, the problems are so large, um, but I feel like it's also okay to say 300 women didn't die. You know, that's pretty good. You know, I feel pretty good about that. And their families, maybe 1,500 people, can't scale it yet. We haven't brought manufacturing to Africa yet. We haven't solved, you know, the problems of Africa. Um, but we're, we're, we're sort of chipping away at something. And so that's just a perspective. I'm always like, well, can you count the impact you had? Because unlike regular venture, when a regular venture goes bad, you've got a bunch of office chairs and some leases to get out of. 
you know, that's what you have when your investment goes bad. <laughs> um, whereas you, in this case, we had an investment that really didn't go well, and you can measure its impact on people's lives. And I think that's really an important differentiation and distinction. I know I, I, I promised I'd open up, but before I do, Michael, I mean, one of the, give directly and Segovia have a number of differences, but one I think I've heard you say in your mind is this issue of scale. So do you, do you how do you think about both scale and impact? I mean, they're, they're two obviously different business models, but they're related. And one reason you went to a for-profit, one reason you went had to do a scale. So I don't know if you... I, I would disagree with that. I, I think give directly on its own can and has had scale. And I think we, we have every ambition, not only to cross the billion dollar mark of amount that we move, but also to really set a benchmark for the sector and force other organizations to make the case that they're doing more good with a dollar than the poor could themselves. So I, nothing to do with scale. What, what it, it actually, if give directly tells you what to do, which is cash transfers, um, the, it's really the what and the why to some degree. Um, what, what Segovia is doing is taking one of the tools that makes that easier, um, a piece, a sliver of the technology, um, and saying we may as well make that available uh, to everybody else uh, to allow them to do that as well. Um, in, in both cases, the, ambitious, the ambition is scale. I think it was just different pieces and one thing I, I would say, we make this distinction, and, and one of the, um, and you, you guys may disagree, so this could make it interesting, but um, I, I never quite understood the discussion around sustainability. Um, there is sustainability of an organization, but my goal is not to create and give directly a sustainable organization. My goal is to create sustainable impact. And we know that when you give people cash now, it actually creates sustainable impact for them. So if you just did the thought experiment, we have enough money in the bank where we could pay the people on staff now. I think I haven't done this math, but I'm pretty sure we could pay them in perpetuity. So Give Directly is a sustainable organization now forever. Now, does that mean that we should hold all the money in the bank? Absolutely not. Because the return to giving that to the poor who have much higher rates of return than the Citibank, we don't use Citibank, but the US-based savings account um, are massive and they do have sustainable impact. What GiveDirectly is doing is GiveDirectly offers a product or a service to a donor. Um, you pay us 10 cents on the dollar and we reliably and efficiently get your money, the other 90 cents, to an extremely poor person around the world. That's a service provision. Um, now, the customer is not the poor, the customer is the donor. Um, but we know that that's a big market. There's $15 billion of international philanthropy that gets done every year. There's $130 billion of international aid that gets done every year. In that case, the donor is the customer, and we're offering them a service that we're charging them for, which is the 10 cents. And I, th I think th there's this notion that somehow the poor need to pay, but when you go to the extreme poor, they can't pay. So the actual customer is the donor. Um, so, and, and, and I... I would just jump in here and say, I think that's right. And I think a baseline for this conversation is there's a lot of really important impact in the world that can't be achieved through a market-based model. Um, and I don't think anyone's disagreeing with that at all. 
great. But what's interesting about those numbers that you just mentioned in terms of, you know, the 130 to 150 billion in foreign assistance, you know, the uh, 40 billion of, of U.S. foundations, is that in the, you know, compared to the trillion dollars in the capital markets, it's a really small pool of money. And so my background, you asked about kind of how we came to this work. I was previously working in the White House. Um, uh, on the intersection of markets and global development. And one of the things that I think uh, was a source of frustration was this sense that if you had big ambitions for underserved people around the world, then those pools of, pools of money are just not enough. So and, I disagree strongly. <laughs> well, hold, well, hold on. But, but what I think is exciting, and, and this is not always the model, but one of the things that this this, um, the growing field of impact investing can make possible, though there's many different flavors, is that for impact investing to play the role of early stage risk capital that's willing to take a bet on a company on day one that no other traditional investor will touch, if they then prove their business model and can eventually scale tapping commercial markets, those commercial markets are pools of capital that are outside of the 150 billion, they're outside of foreign assistance, they're outside of philanthropy. And so it means that it can scale and reach millions more people without having to do it by taking money from one program and reallocating it to another in a world of scarce assets. And so, um, uh, but, but glad for you to jump in. No, please unwind the because uh, it's an over. Well, yes, why? Why do you disagree? Yes, could we get more by taking the private sector capital and adding it to the public sector? Absolutely, um, it, it's bigger, right? We and we can get more by adding it together. And do I wish that we could take all the money being spent on cat videos and pet food and send it to the extreme poor? Yes. Um, having said that, well, we do it work. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Who would pay for us? <laughs> Having said that, I, I think, um, so Brookings did an incredible piece uh, probably five months ago or so where they looked at the poverty gap. So what the poverty gap is, if, if you take someone's living at 65 cents and the poverty line is a dollar, they're 35 cents short of the gap. And they did the arithmetic and said, well, what would it take each year to close the poverty gap? And the number is about $50 billion or so. Now, that is a big number by a lot of metrics, but it is a fraction of the amount of money we're spending on development assistance. Um, what that tells you is that we actually have a different problem. And by the way, this has changed for the first time in history, uh, probably about five years or so ago, and really encourage you to look at the chart. We now send way more on development assistance than would arithmetically take to close the poverty gap. So this becomes a challenge of how can we get those resources as efficiently as possible to the poor. So I completely agree that if we can unlock the private capital, we could do more. Absolutely true, and I would love, and we should be unlocking those trillions. Uh, but at the same time, we shouldn't discount the size of the 130 billion, which I should also say is only a fraction of social spend, so that is development assistance. That does not include the hundreds of billions and probably close to a trillion of social welfare spend that the emerging markets are spending on their own countries. India has two of the biggest social programs in the world. Um, Pakistan has a billion dollar cash transfer program. You can go on. You're talking in the hundreds of billions. There's a lot being spent. Um, and I do think that if we look at how we spend that, you could accelerate the end of poverty and close that gap. I, I, I'm I've been told we have to wrap it up, but thank you all for having me. I want it, Robin, um, Liz, Michael, thank you very much. And thank you all for having me.
Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.